seems that whenever Lee goes on vacation, all of a sudden we're like, hey, let's do baptisms. Let's do a, a church potluck. Let's do... Awesome. You know, we're going we're gonna to be diving into Romans 8, but before we get there, and we don't often do this as a church, but there have just been so many things in the last couple of weeks that have been impacting us from a social standpoint as a country. And, and although we don't normally kind of step out and go, hey, let's just address this specifically, I, I feel like I have to say something. Um, and so I've been really, I just want you to know I am still in process, and I just ask for your grace here. Um, but there, I've been really grieved over the last couple of weeks. started two weeks ago when there was a, a kid who, who decided that because he shared a different color skin than some other people, it was grounds for him to give action to his hate, and he took a gun into a church and shot a bunch of people that he thought were different from him. And he gave voice to his hatred. And the people that lost their loved ones could have very easily responded in like manner, could have given voice to their hatred. And I am so proud of my brothers and sisters in Charlton, Charleston, who responded out of love and out of grace rather than sitting in judgment on this kid, as I'm sure they felt like they had every right to do. They recognized that they are sinners saved by grace as well. And so they took a humble approach. And they said, we forgive you. We release you from our right to hold anger and resentment. Now, does that mean that there is no accountability? No, but they recognized that they were not the ones to sit in judgment on this kid. And I am so grateful that they chose to proclaim their faith in Jesus Christ and their declaration that greater is he that's in us than is in the world. And man, God won even in the midst of that horrible tragedy. And then a, a few days later, we had the, the Supreme Court making a ruling on, on a topic, homosexual marriage, that I know is extremely divisive. And I recognize that there are some of us in here today who are like, awesome, it's about time. And then there are others of us in here who probably feel like the sky is falling and that the world is coming to an end. And I simply want to remind you a couple things. One, God is still on the throne. And simply because five justices make a ruling does not mean that they have deposed God as God. Now, I also want to remind us that although this country was founded on Christian principles, it has never been our place as Christ followers to dictate how other people live their lives. It's just not our place. In fact, God himself chose to give us free will because he wanted us to choose him as opposed to forcing us to be in relationship with him. And thirdly, I just want to remind us, because I have been grieved. I, I, I haven't known how to respond to this, and I'm still in process. But I have been grieved to see the invective that I've seen on social media, the ways that people, even within the Christian community, are kind of digging their heels in on one side of this and lobbing grenades at one another. We will be known as Christ followers by our love. And yet, I've got to say right now, there is a whole lot of anger and hatred and condemnation being thrown around from both sides. And may I simply implore you, as my brothers and my sisters in Jesus Christ who have been saved by grace, we will never be able to invite people into relationship with Jesus if we're screaming at them. People will be loved into the kingdom of God. Just, just read the Gospels and see how Jesus responded to the people that the religious elite said were outcasts. 
Am I saying that I agree completely with what the justices did? I am not saying that. Am I saying that God... I'm not even going down that track. What I am saying is we will be known by our love, so may we start loving our neighbor even if they don't agree with us. And this goes for not just people who have a homosexual lifestyle. This goes for people who are struck in alcoholism. People who are... are, are, Gosh, I'm going... All right, I'm done. I've said enough. You guys get it, okay? Again, I'm still in process. Please know that. Because at the end of the day, we are Christ followers not because we have it all together. We are Christ followers because we are the first to declare that we have sinned. We have fallen short of God's righteous standard and we desperately need a Savior. That is the only ground that we have to stand on as a community of Christ followers. And thanks be to God that he has saved us in spite of our brokenness. That's the point, by the way, that Paul has been talking about this entire time. Through the first seven chapters of Romans, we've been in this for like three months now. And the whole time he's been basically saying, Every single one of you has fallen short of God's righteous standard. Every single one of you has stumbled in sin. None of you will be declared righteous by observing the law. Now, there are some within the Jewish Christian community in Rome who would have probably balked at that statement, that all of us have sinned and fallen short of God's righteous standard and cannot be declared righteous by our efforts. They would have been going, well, wait a minute, we're Jewish. We're God's chosen people. We've been given the law that he handed down to Moses. That's how we are made righteous. And and, and Paul addressed that head on. He said that the law was never given to be some ladder that we can climb to attain righteousness. In fact, the law was done to just do just the opposite. The law was given to shine a spotlight on our brokenness, on our inherent need for a savior. The law was given... The analogy I've been using, because it works for me, is it's like the x-ray that you get when you go into the dentist and it shows you all the cavities in your teeth so that you will be willing to sit down and allow the dentist to drill. Not comfortable, and we're not going to do it if we don't think there's an issue. So let me show you the issue. That's what the point of the law was. So don't think for a moment that you are righteous simply because you have the law. You Jewish Christ followers, okay? That's what he's saying in Romans. Much of Romans chapter... One through seven is focused on that point. Well, now some people might say, well, wait a minute. If I'm no longer under the law, but I'm under grace, because remember, as Paul has mentioned on a bunch of times, God never expected us to earn our salvation by our own strength, to live perfect, righteous lives. He recognized it was impossible for us to do. And that's why he sent Jesus Christ, God in human flesh, to take upon himself the punishment that we had earned for ourselves. The wages of sin is death. And all of us have sinned. All of us deserve death. And that's why Jesus died for us. He took upon himself the punishment we had earned so that we don't stand before God in terror as condemned people deserving of death. We stand before him as righteous, clothed and washed in the blood of Jesus Christ. We are made new because of what Jesus did for us. And it wasn't because we had earned it. Remember, when did, when did God send Jesus? While we were still sinners. While we still had our heels dug into the ground saying, I'm going to live any way that I want, that's when God sent Jesus to die for us. And it is solely through Jesus' sacrifice that we have any grounds to stand on and say that God is our Father. 
Now, there's a, a word that Paul uses because even though Jesus died once and for all for us and justified us in the eyes of the law, we still have this sin nature, a word that is on the top of your bulletins. You're going, what is this word, sarks? That is the word that Paul uses all throughout Romans and through a lot of his other letters to refer to our sin nature. Some of your Bibles refer to that as the flesh. That's another way that it is commonly translated. Our sarks, our flesh, our sin nature is the sum total of our, our natural bent that we inherited from Adam and Eve. They sinned. When they doubted God's goodness and they ate of the fruit, kind of took matters into their own hands, sin entered in and began to corrupt the image bearers that they were. And we, as children of Adam and Eve, have inherited that sin nature. And so that nature draws us back into slavery, even though Jesus Christ died for us so that we could be released from slavery. Our flesh still calls us to go back. It was interesting, a couple weeks ago in our small group, um, we were talking about this kind of like, okay, well, Jesus has already died for us, and yet we still have the flesh. How does that all work out? And Mandy Strzok said something that really struck me. She said, um, you know, it's a lot like the Israelites in the wilderness on the way to the promised land. She's absolutely right. So let me just play out this analogy for you, okay? The Israelites were stuck in bondage in Egypt. They'd been born into it. They didn't have a choice in the matter. Although they were the chosen people of God, they were enslaved. And that was the only choice they had is you submit or you die. And ultimately death was all they had to look forward to. But then God said, I am not willing to allow my people to remain enslaved. And so he took it upon himself. He called Moses and he says, you're going to be my representative. Go tell Pharaoh, let my people go. He won't listen to me. I will make him listen to you. And so Moses went to Pharaoh, and Pharaoh originally, initially balks at that suggestion. Let my slave labor go? I don't think so. And so then over the course of ten plagues, God wears Pharaoh's resolve down until the tenth plague, where Pharaoh's firstborn son dies. Ultimately, breaking his resolve, and he says, fine, go, get out of here. And God freed his people. And then he led them through the Red Sea, through the wilderness, on the way to the promised land. And yet, even in the midst of that journey to the promised land, you have these Israelites going, God, why did you bring us out here to die? I mean, at least back in Egypt, we had pots of meat that we could eat. Here, we have to be, we got this bread that you keep giving us every morning. It's not enough. It's like, you whiny guys, but isn't that just like us? Because God himself gave his firstborn son to buy us out of slavery. And he is leading us, he is promising us that he is leading us into an eternal existence with him where there will be no more tears, no more sorrow, no more brokenness, no more death. That's the promised land that we have coming. But we still live in the in-between time, the already but not yet. He's already died for us, but we are not yet made perfect. And we still have this sin nature that we carry around with us. And we are still drawn back to the slavery from which Jesus bought us out of. How on earth can we overcome that brokenness? Well, thankfully, God has never expected us to try to overcome our flesh by our own strength. By the way, I realize this is a really long introduction to the passage we're going to look at today. Just go with me. God has never expected us to do this by our own strength. 
With the Israelites, when he led them out of, the out of Egypt towards the promised land, he led them in a pillar of cloud by day, fire by night. He guided them. But even that he recognized wasn't enough. And so he said, you know what? I want to get even closer to you so you realize that I am with you in every step of the way. So I want you to build a tent, a tabernacle, a place of meeting that you can come to me and interact with me and, and kind of get your marching orders and we can kind of communicate with one another. And so they built this tabernacle. And the coolest part, I love this picture, because every day that the, the cloud would kind of move on, the people would break camp. And the tabernacle would go ahead of the, the whole camp and everybody would follow behind. They are following their God. And when, they, when the clouds stopped in a certain place, indicating this is where we're going to camp for the night, the tabernacle was the first thing set up. And then they would array their tents around the tabernacle. It was always at the very center of the camp as a tangible reminder to the people that your God is with you. And in the same way, our Father in heaven recognizes that we cannot overcome our flesh by our own strength. But he never expected us to. And so when we say yes to Jesus Christ, I want you to be the Savior and Lord of my life. He gives us his Holy Spirit to reside within us. A comforter, a counselor, our ever-present help as we follow Jesus to the very best of our ability, stumbling all along the way. And although Jesus once and for all paid for the, the penalty of our sins so we can be justified in the eyes of the law, we still carry this sin nature around with us and it's the Holy Spirit that enters in and begins to work on that nature, that sarks, that flesh within us that wants to just run back into slavery. That's the sanctification process. We, these are big words. I know justification, Jesus died and paid the penalty for our sins once and for all. We have been justified in the eyes of the law. But we are in the process of being sanctified, of being set apart for God. And it is a lifelong process process none of us have arrived but the picture i get of the sanctification process again using the analogy of the israelites in the wilderness when they came out of egypt i'm sure that a lot of them tried to bring everything that they considered to be of value with them they may have had carts they may have had backpacks laden with their loot from their homes, the things that they had found value in, the things that they had found comfort in, the things that they had found their confidence in. This, these are our treasures. And as they're following God with these backpacks full of stuff, day after day, mile after mile, those backpacks get heavier and heavier as they realize, I don't even need this stuff anymore. This may have served me well back in slavery, but I'm not in slavery anymore. And my dependence isn't upon this stuff. My dependence is on God. So you know what? Cappuccino maker? I don't need this anymore. Right? And whatever else it is, they start, treat, start reaching into the pack and pulling out something else and going, I don't really need this. And they toss it to the side. And as the Israelites followed their God towards the promised land, their trail was marked by a long line of cast off stuff laying in the dust tangible reminders of the fact that they were no longer enslaved and no longer depended upon those things and now that their dependence was upon their God. What a beautiful picture of what the Holy Spirit is doing in us over the course of our lifetimes. As he enters in when we say, Jesus, I want you to be this, not only the Savior of my life, but my Lord as well. And then the Holy Spirit co starts coming in and going, well, how about this? Do you still need this? <gasps> yeah. Well, maybe not. 
okay, let's try to cast it aside. Now, sometimes we turn around and go run back and grab it, carry it a little longer. But that's the sanctification process, is the Holy Spirit saying, you don't need this anymore. Your dependence is upon God, not your stuff. Make sense? You with me? Because the reality is that we have been saved by the blood of the Lamb. We have been justified and we can stand with confidence in front of our God. But we carry with us the flesh, the sarks, our sin nature that just won't die, that just wants to keep running back into slavery. And it's into that question of what do we do with our flesh that Paul now will speak. Because even Paul in in chapter 7, what do I do with my Bible? It's right behind me. Doggone it. Even Paul in chapter 7 acknowledged the fact that he had a flesh side. The guy who wrote almost half of the New Testament recognized, man, the things I don't want to do, I keep doing them. And the things that I do want to do, I don't even do them anymore. My goodness, who on earth, what a wretched man I am. I can, I can identify with that. Who possibly could save me from this body of death? His conclusion was, thanks be to God who through Jesus Christ has reconciled me to him. So now go with me to Romans chapter 8. And we're only going to bite off a very small piece. This is like steak, and we're going to take the next few weeks to actually work through chapter 8. This is one of my favorite chapters in Scripture, and it's become even more special to me as I've spent some time with it over these last couple weeks. But we're only going to take about 13 verses. But we've already really set up the heartbeat behind what Paul is saying here. So he says in verse 1 of chapter 8, Therefore, in, in, in light of, man, the things I don't want to do, I keep doing, and the things I do want to do, I don't do. Who can save me? Thanks be to Jesus Christ. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. In other words, the law that was given at Mount Sinai that was only there to shine a spotlight on our brokenness, We could never use it to climb into righteousness because we have a sin nature that keeps rebelling against it. That was never the way to life, but now we have been given a new law by the Spirit within us. It is a law of grace. We have been saved by grace alone through faith, not by works so that nobody can boast. So, because through Jesus Christ, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. Verse 3. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, by the sarks, by our sin nature, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. Now notice it says the likeness of sinful flesh. Jesus took on flesh. He was human, fully human. And he experienced life and pain. He was tempted in every way. And yet, as the writer of Hebrews says, he was without sin. And yet he has experienced life. And so he had the likeness of sinful flesh, even though he did not sin himself. So God has paid the penalty through his own son, who in this likeness of sinful flesh became a sin offering. So he condemned sin in our, in our flesh, in our sarks, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh, the sin nature, but according to the spirit. Those who live in accordance with the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires. 
But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh, by the sin nature, is death. But the mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. We're going to come back to these verses in a little bit. The mind governed by the flesh or the sin nature is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of the sin nature or of the flesh cannot please God no matter how hard we try. You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but you are in the realm of the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God lives in you. And how do we know if the spirit of God lives in us? Because when we submit our lives to Jesus Christ, God gives us his spirit and we begin to see the fruit of that spirit playing out. And if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, they don't belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, even though you keep stumbling back to the very things that you tried to run away from, that Jesus died to pay for you to get out of, the Spirit still gives you life because of righteousness. Not our righteousness, Christ's righteousness. And if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, then He, will also, he who raised Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of His Spirit who lives in you. Therefore, Brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it's not to the flesh. It's not to our sin nature to live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, you're going to die. But if by the spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. That's all we're going to go because there's already plenty of, of stuff for us to wrestle with here. One thing I want us to recognize, I want to point out right up front, and that is time and time again in this passage... And in, 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 in this letter, Paul seems to kind of have this kind of wrestling, this dichotomy between the, you know, what is declared of us because Jesus did for us and what we need to do. I've called it the imperative, um, the indicative, this is what you are, and then the imperative, so this is how you need to live. He said it time and again, and we see it play out in this passage right here. Here's the indicative, this is what you are. Verse 1, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because through Christ, the law of the spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. Jesus has paid the penalty for our sinful brokenness. He has bought us out of slavery. End of story. He's done everything that needs to be done. End of story. There's a sense of security that comes with that, isn't there? That's the indicative. This is what you are. But right on the same breath at the end in verse 12, Paul then goes to, well, then this is how you should live. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it's not to the flesh to live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. In other words, you've been freed. Jesus paid for you to be able to walk out of slavery. But you're carrying the sin nature within you. And it keeps tugging us back into slavery, back into the very mire that Jesus pulled us out of. Often, we have presented the invitation to follow Jesus Christ as a prayer. Pray this prayer and you're good to go and you can live any way that you want. Although we would never say you can live any way you want. That's kind of the implied expectation. He's done everything, so therefore, pray a prayer and then go on with your life. You're good to go. You stamped your ticket. 
But I never see a single place in Scripture where Jesus said, Come, pray this prayer. You know what he did say? Follow me. Come with me. Do what I do. Learn from me. Yeah, you're not going to do it perfectly. Man, his disciples were anything but perfect. But they chose to follow him. Because I might tell you, this chair, I believe wholeheartedly that this chair will hold me up. How do you know if I actually believe that the chair will hold me up? I sit down in it. Jesus never said, I came simply to be your savior. He came, I said, he said, somebody said, (laughs) he came to be both our savior and our Lord. And they are two sides of the same coin. We can't simply accept Jesus as our savior and not allow him to be the Lord of our life. Why is this important? Well, I love what one, it's written on your bulletins, the very bottom there. This is what one uh, person that I was reading on, on this topic was saying. He said, listen, this is important because security, this idea that Jesus has done everything for us without a responsibility of feeling like, well, we have some part in at least responding to that breeds passivity. It breeds a kind of Christianity that says, well, praying a prayer is really all there is, and then I can go on with my life. I get to still be the captain of my ship. On the flip side, a sense of responsibility. I have a part to play in this. I need to follow Jesus without security of knowing that, hey, I live in a constant sea of grace. It's the only, you know, leg to stand on that I have. Thankfully, God has done everything I need to do. Well, if we don't have security, but we have responsibility, that's going to breed anxiety. We're going to constantly go through life going, have I done enough? Did I screw up? Do I need to do something to make up for it? And we will run right back to those ladders of righteousness that will never lead towards righteousness. Jesus has paid it all. We have been justified, but we now have an obligation to follow our Lord and Savior into freedom. Does that make sense? It's one of these things that is a constant wrestling match. The thing I don't want us to do is get so complacent in our Christianity that we go, it really doesn't matter what we choose to do. I I really don't need to wrestle with my sin nature. And by the way, the closer I get to Jesus, the more aware of my sin nature I become. I am more aware of my brokenness now than I was when I first accepted Jesus as my Lord and Savior. As I keep peeling layers of this onion back and realizing, ooh, that's ugly. God, I need your help. And thankfully, he's right there going, yeah, you do. That's why I'm here. That's why I've given you my Holy Spirit. So, are we saved by our efforts? Absolutely not. It is by grace alone, through faith, that we are saved. However, as James put it in his letter, Faith without action is dead. In other words, if we don't begin to live out and respond to the faith that we have and begin to submit our lives to Jesus as our Lord and Savior, then our faith declaration is suspect at best. So that's one thing. Who are we? We are sinners saved by grace. And thankfully, we are saved by grace alone but we have a part to play. We now are invited, encouraged, implored to follow our Lord and Savior towards freedom. But how do we do that? How do we actually become set apart? How do we become, how does the Holy Spirit work in us and do all that kind of stuff? Paul addressed that 
beginning in verse 5 of this chapter. So let's go ahead and go back there because there's a word that is translated in here that phroneo, can you, is that up there? Go ahead and throw that up there. Um, It's on the back of your bulletins or your outlines here. There's a word that only Paul uses in all of the New Testament. The word is phronema, I think. Phronema, it basically means our mindset. What I mean by this, it is whatever we fix our mind on, whatever we put our heart upon, that is our mindset. What we set our minds upon will ultimately dictate the direction that we walk. Whether we put our minds on, on the things of the flesh and we walk right back into slavery, or we fix our minds and our hearts on Jesus and rest in the Holy Spirit's enablement, and we walk stumblingly, haltingly towards freedom. Verse 5, those who live according to the flesh or the sin nature have their minds set on what the flesh desires. They fix their minds that way. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death and that's where it leads but the mind governed by the spirit is life and peace the mind governed by the flesh is hostile to god it doesn't want to submit it doesn't want to give in it wants to do its own thing it says jesus you can save me all you want but don't you dare tell me what to do with my money don't you dare tell me with what to do with my anger Don't you dare tell me what goes on between my ears and my thought life. That's mine. It doesn't hurt anybody. And I think about the Israelites again for a moment. Because they were led out of slavery, out of bondage towards the promised land. But do you realize that every time that they kind of crashed and burned as a people of God, and they did it a lot, It was because they had taken their minds and their focus off of their God and placed it onto things of this world. I think about when they came to the edges of the promised land and they sent 12 spies in to go take a look. Two of them came back and said, Dude, it's great in there. It's the land of milk and honey. There's grapes, bunches like this big. It's going to be amazing. Our God is good. Ten came back. There's giants, they're big. And the people were more terrified of the giants than they were, had faith in their God. And so the people, in a very democratic move, said, we're not going to go. We don't trust our own strength or our God's strength to be able to overcome the giants. And so they chose not to. And they spent the next four decades wandering in the wilderness because they didn't trust their God. And the only two people to enter into the land from that generation were the two spies who said, we can take the land, let's go. Later on, when the people finally did go in, another generation of Israelites entered in, took the land. And then once again, they took their eyes off of their God and they began to look at the other nations around them and they went, wait a minute, there's something different about these things. One of these things is not like the other. They all have kings. Who do we have? We have God? We want a king. We want to be like all the other nations. And so they cried out to God, give us a king. And God goes, do you realize what you're asking for? You're choosing a person to lead you over me? Is that really what you want? Yeah. We want to be like them. Okay. 
You read the books of First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, you can see the damage that that choice made and the way that it fractured the nation and ultimately caused the people to be sent out from the promised land because they basically, the kings led them astray time and time again. And there were some good kings in there that led them back towards God. But I promise you that if God had been their God, it probably would have gone a lot better for them. We go to the New Testament. Peter is a great example of what it looks like when we begin to take our eyes off of our God and begin to place it around us. Sitting in a boat. It's a stormy night. And they see Jesus walking on the water. And Peter's like, that's cool. Jesus, if that's you, can I come too? Come on, Peter. So Peter gets out of the boat. To his credit, he's the only one who asked. He's the only one who did it. Starts walking towards Jesus on the water. It'd be really, really cool. Surfing without a surfboard. Focused on Jesus. But all of a sudden, before too long, he starts going, oh, it's a big storm. And those waves are pretty big. I can't walk on water. And he was absolutely right. And he sank. Because he wasn't holding himself above the water. Jesus was. And when he took his eyes off of Jesus and he placed it onto his own strength, he sank. Here's the point I'm getting at. If we as a people allow our minds and our hearts to be drawn back to the things that our flesh hungers after and we don't try to rein them in, we don't allow the Spirit's conviction to have any sway over that and we just give ourselves fully over to those things, one thing will happen. We will run right back into the very slavery that Jesus died to buy us out of. But if we focus our energies on our own strength to try to overcome our sin nature... It's not going to be much better. We're just going to become discouraged because we have no ability in and of ourselves to be holy as our God is holy and we will constantly fall far short. But if we fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, and we are willing to die to ourselves daily, stumbling along the way, recognizing that there are going to be moments where our flesh, our sin nature, our sark springs up and goes, I'm still here! Oh, gone it. And when that happens, rather than like being like a wounded dog that runs under the porch to lick its wounds to clean itself up and then and only then comes back towards God, rather than that being one of those people who just runs to the foot of the cross and going, God, I need you. Oh, I need you. Every hour I need you because, man, I messed up again. If we are willing to submit our hearts and our minds and fix them on our God and to the and trusting in the enablement of the Holy Spirit stumble towards the promised land, then we have one thing that we have to look forward to, and that is eternal life. The coolest part is, if we are doing that, then actually eternal life begins now. When we give our hearts and our minds to God, we start having interaction and intimacy with Him, and the coolest part then is we get to be used by Him to be light in the darkness, to speak love rather than anger. And man, does our culture need it right now. So we have something that we're going to end with today that I'm really, really excited about. And that is we have a couple of people who have decided that they want to publicly declare their decision to follow Jesus Christ as both their Savior but also as their Lord. And I'm going to invite them. Hunter, I want you to come up. Sandra, where are you? And then Tara, I don't, are you here right now, Tara? Okay, I didn't think so. So let me have the two of you guys come up here. Grab a seat. And the cool part is, I was actually able to go quickly enough 
that they get a little bit of time to talk. Grab a seat. I'm not sure that they're excited about that fact, but whatever. Scoot over here for just a second. I'll get, or I'll go in the middle. That's fine, too. Do you want me to move the... No, you don't have to move. 